Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, in the winter of 2007, something pretty remarkable happened in New York City. A construction worker named Wesley Autry was standing on a subway platform with his two daughters, ages four and six, and they were simply waiting on a train. Well, suddenly there was a man beside them, evidently suffering from a seizure. He stumbled and fell off the platform. Do you see where this is going? Onto the tracks right as a train was rapidly approaching. In fact, you could hear the train coming. You could see the train's lights in the tunnel. Wesley Autry quickly sprang into action. He left his daughters with somebody who was up there, a woman who was looking after them. Then he jumped down onto the tracks, and he tried his very best to pull that unconscious man out of the way of the oncoming train. The problem was that train was coming way too fast. There simply was not enough time. Now, again, he was a construction worker, knew a thing or two about spaces, so he made a split-second decision. He pressed the man down into the hollowed-out space between the rails, and then he spread his whole body over the man as the train passed over the two of them together. Could you imagine? The entire train, with the exception of two cars, cleared Autry by mere inches. In fact, it came so close... You see this blue knit cap that he's wearing? It came so close that it left grease marks on that blue knit cap that he had been wearing on that cold winter morning in New York City. And when that train finally came to a halt, which I'm sure to Autry felt like forever, he called out to frightened onlookers, hey, listen, we're okay down here, but there are two little girls up there. Will somebody please tell them that their daddy is okay? When the story broke out, do you remember the story from 2007? When the story broke out, Wesley Autry became a national hero. He received some of the highest medals, awards, accolades that any person could ever hope to achieve an unbelievable amount of fame. He was listed in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of the Year. And he was personally invited by then-President George W. Bush to attend the State of the Union. And when President Bush, and we have a picture of this, when President Bush uh, made mention of Autry's heroic actions in his speech, Autry received a standing ovation from all the people in attendance that evening. Newspapers came up with clever nicknames for Wesley Autry. The Subway Superman, one newspaper called him. The Hero of Harlem, said another. But the headline that really stood out was this. Good Samaritan saves man on the subway tracks. Good Samaritan saves man on the subway tracks. Short and to the point. You know, chances are, if you had seen that newspaper headline back in 2007, you would have immediately understood its significance. You would have recognized its meaning, even if you had never been to church or read the Bible before in your life. Uh, we're in a sermon series here at Asbury 
called Stories Jesus Told. We saw the bumper video uh, just a few minutes ago. And in this series, uh, we are looking carefully at the parables of Jesus. Jesus told dozens of parables over the course of his public ministry. And I think it's safe to say that almost everyone, if not everyone, is familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Next to the prodigal son, the parable of the Good Samaritan is the most well-known story that Jesus ever told. But because this story is so familiar, because this story is so well-known, a lot of us assume that we have it all figured out, that there's nothing new to learn. Oh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I know that one. That's a moral and ethical tale about how we are to go out of our way to help people in need. And certainly that's a part of it. But my question is, is that all there is to it? The truth is, there is more going on in the parable of the Good Samaritan than many of us realize. In fact, I would even venture to say that the parable of the Good Samaritan is the most misunderstood story that Jesus told. So what I want to do this morning as we move into the sermon is I want to invite us for a few moments just to lay aside. Let's put aside everything we think we know about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Can we do that for a few minutes? Just put aside everything we think we know about the parable of the Good Samaritan so that we can experience this story for the first time all over again and allow the power contained within this story to wash over us and draw us closer to the one who in Jesus Christ has come for everybody. And so with all that being said, I invite you to listen with me to these words from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, one thing that's uh, interesting about the parable of the Good Samaritan, it is only found in the Gospel of Luke. You won't find it in the other Gospels. This is from Luke 10, uh, verses 25 through 37. Uh, if you'd like to follow along, there are Bibles in the pew, and there's also uh, Bibles in the pews, and there's also uh, the passage up here on the screen. It says, One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions. And so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Obviously, this was back before credit cards existed. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, 
Now go and do the same. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As we dive into the sermon, what I want to do first is I want to revisit a point that we made two weeks ago when we kicked off the sermon series. Jesus hardly ever told parables randomly. He hardly ever told parables randomly. Instead, there was context to these stories that he gave. And a key to understanding this parable that we just read in Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, is by recognizing where Jesus was going to, where he was headed when he told this parable. And so with that, uh, check out what it says here in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 51. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, let's read this next part together. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Luke doesn't say Jesus casually walked to Jerusalem. He resolutely set out. I love that word resolutely. That's where we get the word resolution. Think of New Year's resolutions. Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. Nothing was going to stop him. But why? I mean, what's important about Jerusalem? What's so significant about Jerusalem? What's going to happen in Jerusalem eventually? Say it louder. The cross. That's where he's going to be crucified. That's where he's willingly, voluntarily going to lay down his life for the forgiveness of human sin. And as Jesus is on his way to the capital city, the holy city, to accomplish this mission, he finds himself stopped by an expert in religious law, a lawyer. Now, this gentleman who stops Jesus, he's not a lawyer by our standards. You're not going to see this guy in an episode of Law and Order or something like that. He's a lawyer by ancient Jewish standards, which means he's an expert in what? The law of Moses, also called the Torah. The Torah is made up of the first five books of the Bible. What are those? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This guy has gone to school. He has years of training. He knows Torah like the back of his hand. He's got all the answers. But interesting enough, this guy with all the answers comes to Jesus with a question. Why? Because he respects Jesus? Because he wants to sit at Jesus' feet and just soak up all this knowledge? No. He wants to pose a difficult question to Jesus. He wants to test Jesus. So as Jesus awkwardly gives a response and just fumbles over his words, well, he's going to expose Jesus' lack of knowledge in front of all these people. He's going to take down Jesus, this supposedly wise rabbi. And so what's the question he raises? What should I do, or what must I do, to inherit eternal life? Notice how that question centers on himself. What should I do? And Jesus plays along. Okay, you're the expert. You study Torah. What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man says, well, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. In other words, love God with the totality of your being. There's not a part of you or a piece of you or an aspect of you that shouldn't love God. In addition, the man says, love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. All right. Good answer, Jesus says. You're on the right track. 
Do this and you will live. But then notice again what Luke says next. The man wanted to justify his actions. Pay attention to those words, justify his actions. The more literal translation is he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Is that the real question? Mm -mm. What's the real question? Who is not my neighbor? Who do I have to love, Jesus? What's the bare minimum I've got to do if I want to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, being Jesus, responds with a story, a really good story. He starts with these words. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as Jesus opens up with these words, his audience is hooked. You could just hear the people in the crowd whisper among themselves, did he say Jerusalem down to Jericho? Well, was this person traveling by himself? You see, these Jews were familiar with the road from Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is built on top of a hill. They were familiar with the road uh, from Jerusalem down to Jericho. They knew how dangerous it was that no sane person would travel that road alone. Uh, When I was in divinity school, uh, what would happen occasionally at the university that my divinity school was connected with Um, Every once in a while, a student would get mugged on or around campus. And, of course, the university had a policy that whenever somebody got mugged, they would make everybody aware of the mugging by email just so people could take appropriate precautions and exercise safety. And here's what the email subject would say. It would say, student robbed. And then you would open up the email, and here's how it read, 99 0.99999% of the time. Yesterday, 3 o'clock in the morning, there was a student in a poorly lit area of campus by himself. One can only imagine what the student was doing. He was mugged. Now, of course, at this point, you're reading the email, and you felt sympathy for the student. You felt compassion for the student, and also relief that the student is okay, But at the same time, what are you asking yourself? What are you doing alone at 3 o'clock in the morning in a poorly lit area? You're just asking for trouble. Look at this. In Jesus' day, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was known as the way of blood. That's a great name for a road, isn't it? We have this information up on the screen. It was known as the way of blood. The road had a lot of twists and turns. And by the way, just imagine that. If you're with your beloved, hey, sweetie, let's go take a walk on the, on the way of blood. That sounds so romantic, doesn't it? The road had a lot of twists and turns. It was easy for robbers to hide in caves and ambush their victims. So it comes as no surprise when Jesus says that this Jewish man was attacked by bandits. They beat him up. They took away his clothes, further humiliating him, all of his belongings, and left him there for dead. Well, by chance, Jesus goes on to say, a priest was coming by, and the plot thickens. A priest, a pastor, a member of the clergy. I mean, if the clergy's not going to help you, who will? But what happens? The priest 
purposely avoids the man, passes by on the other side. And the people in the audience are probably saying to themselves, well, it's understandable. I mean, how is this priest supposed to know that this man is in fact alive? Because if the man were dead and this priest were to go to touch him, well, by our standards, by Jewish law, he would be considered what? Unclean. He would not be able to perform his priestly duties. And so we don't applaud his actions, but we don't condemn them. He was in a tough spot. Jesus goes on. A temple assistant came. We might think of this person, a temple assistant, as an involved church member today. Somebody who sits on committees, helps out with the youth, gives financially, is always volunteering. That go-to person in the church. I mean, certainly this person is going to stop and help the man. No, this person as well passes by on the other side. And the audience again says, well, it's understandable. I mean, how is this temple assistant supposed to know that this isn't a big trap, that this man isn't a decoy pretending to be in trouble? So again, we don't applaud what he did, but we also don't condemn what he did. Tough spot. Finally, Jesus says, a Samaritan came by. And when Jesus says Samaritan, the crowd is silent. Their blood begins to boil. Because Jews, by and large, and I cannot overstate this, Jews, by and large, despise Samaritans 2,000 years ago. I'm sure there were some exceptions, but by and large, they despise Samaritans. Do you know why? Do you know the Samaritans were? Just a quick history lesson. About 700 years before Jesus, uh, the Israelite nation was split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, which had the name Israel, and then you had the southern kingdom. What was the southern kingdom called? Judah. Northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Eventually, around 722 B.C., the Assyrians, remember the Assyrians? Uh, the capital city of Assyria was Nineveh. That was the city that the prophet Jonah went to. Well, the Assyrians came in and attacked and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And what ended up happening is some of those Israelites intermarried with the Assyrians. And their descendants came to be known as Samaritans. And so to Jewish people, Samaritans were considered those who had defiled themselves. They had different practices, different customs. There was disagreement between these two people groups. And they were recognized by the Jews as a cursed people. No good could come from a Samaritan. In fact, it was so it, there was such tension when it came to Jews and Samaritans that in many cases, it was easier to be a Gentile and convert to Judaism than it was to be a Samaritan and convert to Judaism. But what happens here? The Samaritan becomes the hero of the story. The Samaritan is coming down the road, and the people are probably plugging their ears, and they're stomping their feet. No, no, no. Not a Samaritan. Anybody but a Samaritan. But the Samaritan comes and and picks up the man and puts him on an animal and takes him to a hotel, nurses him back to help. Which of these three? You have the priest, the temple assistant, the Samaritan. Which of these three was a neighbor to the man in need of help? 
And this lawyer, this religious expert, this guy who wants to justify himself, notice he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Notice what he says. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. You could just picture him gritting his teeth. Oh, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes. Now go and do the same. Go and be like the Samaritan. That invitation is not as easy as we often think. Back in the 1970s, uh, researchers conducted an experiment with some seminary students, those who were studying for the ministry. What these researchers did is they gathered this group of seminary students and they gave them an assignment. The assignment was to record a sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Sounds like a pretty simple assignment for a seminary student to do. The thing was, the sermon was to be recorded in a building on the opposite end of campus. And because of a tight schedule, these students had to get to that building as quickly as possible. While unbeknownst to these students who were given this assignment, these researchers had actually planted an actor in the middle of campus playing the part of a man in distress, slumped over, coughing, suffering, in need of help, in need of assistance. These students were on their way to preach a sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan, but these researchers wondered what's going to happen when these students encounter somebody in need. Are they going to be a Good Samaritan to this man? The answer is no. Most of those students ran past that man. Actually, one student almost tripped over the guy as he ran to preach a sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you see the irony of that? And lest any of us think of condemning these students, calling them hypocrites, how many of us in that same circumstance would have done the same thing? I mean, how many of us, and we've all been there before, you're in the car, you're driving down the road, you see somebody off in the distance with their hood up, how many of us are more likely to swerve around that person than we are to stop and help? At best, we might call for somebody else or hope that somebody else will stop and help. And in our mind, wanting to justify ourselves, justify our actions, we say things, well, you know, I'm on my way to an appointment. I'm running late. I don't have time. And you know what? I don't know anything about cars. And, and besides, that person is a stranger. I don't know that person. That is a risk to my safety. That's true. It was for the Samaritan too. What the Samaritan did was a severe risk to his safety. Just like what Wesley Autry did in New York City was a severe risk to his safety, wasn't it? That's why we marvel at guys like Wesley Autry and the Good Samaritan so much, these guys represent who we aspire to be, but not necessarily who we always are. We are not the Good Samaritan, which raises another question. If we're not the Good Samaritan, then who are we? Well, as we said earlier, there is more going on in this parable than we often realize. This is not simply an invitation to be like the Samaritan. I mean, it is to a degree. Jesus said, go and do the same. So, yes, we are called to be like the Samaritan, but we realize when it comes down to it that we fall way below this standard. 
We fall way below the standard that has been set when it comes to loving God, and we also fall way below the standard when it comes to loving our neighbor in the same way that we love ourselves. And folks, that's precisely why Jesus told this story. This story reveals to us the essence of salvation. Think about it. Is it any wonder that Jesus delivers this parable on the way to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified when suddenly he's stopped by a lawyer who asks him, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Think about the irony of that question. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to give his life for us when the man asks, what should I do to inherit what you're going to accomplish? The truth is, we cannot do anything to inherit eternal life. Amen? We can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Eternal life must come as a gift. A gift given by whom? By Jesus Christ. The one whom humanity despised, rejected, crucified, who in a real sense became our good Samaritan. And if Jesus is the good Samaritan, if the one whom we have rejected has become our Savior, then what are we? We are the man in the ditch crying out for rescue. Please, God, help me. Please, God, save me. This story reveals the essence of salvation. We cannot do anything to save ourselves. Only the Son of God can save us. There's an old story about a man who dies, and he comes to the pearly gates. These are always fun stories, aren't they? Only it's not Peter that he sees at the pearly gates. It's Gabriel, the famous angel. And Gabriel says to the man, well, here's how this works. I want you to tell me all the good things that you did in your life. And those good things are worth a certain amount of points. The more good, the more points. You need 100 points to get into heaven. And the man says, all right. So he starts. Well, I was married for over 50 years, and I was always faithful to my spouse. Very good, Gabriel says. That's worth three points. Three points? That's all? Well, I was really involved in church. I hardly ever missed a service. I volunteered. I gave financially. Wonderful, Gabriel says. That's worth a point. A point? The man started to panic. Okay, well, how about this? I opened up a shelter for people in my community experiencing homelessness, and during the holidays, we fed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of needy families. Very good, Gabriel says. That's also worth one point. One point? At this rate, the man says, the only way I'm going to make it into heaven is by the grace of God. Exactly. Gabriel says, you're on to something. Come on in. In the grand narrative of salvation, it is not what we do that grants us eternal life. Eternal life comes through the grace of the one whom we have despised, rejected, crucified, Jesus the Christ, the good Samaritan for us all. Praise be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.